0: Just quite frankly, these things bring in students more than academics, Um, which is kind of an indictment towards America's overall view of how college should work. But that's unfortunately just kind of where we're at.
1: Liberal arts was once the domain of the landed gentry. Our great mistake was extending it to everyone. If people didn't know how to read, they wouldn't be asking for these things. I think we're back to... We just do not need to teach people how to read. That's the real problem with reading. That's the real problem That's- with reading is that people know how to do it.
2: Okay, three and a half. All
1: right, All right we're actually going now. <coughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. Uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And uh, here we all are. Sam's back, everybody. What a glorious day. Sam, how does it feel to be returned to the land of the living?
2: It was a nice, restful sabbatical. Um, spent writing, I don't even know how many papers. Too many papers. I don't how remember any of them. Like, Give us an estimated four, page count. 40? 40 pages? 45? 40. Okay. I think so. I think? Plus a bunch of finals, a couple of which I flunked. Um Ooh. and so we're just we're doing good here. Just coasting
1: right into summer.
2: Coasting right into summer where I'm gonna work and sell my soul to the to the corporation, the nameless, faceless corporation.
1: Yeah, hey, that's what um, I
2: did. Yeah, hey, there's, hey, there's nothing better. Nothing and better. uh and then before I get one last breath of academia, and then that's that's it
1: that's it your yeah. your life ends now this this was the peak and it's all downhill uh speaking of going downhill uh steven what are you drinking right now
0: has nothing to do with going downhill but guess, <laughs> you know, my particular case is because i've actually run out already i was drinking uh some tea and i'm already out because it's stupid hot in uh, seattle
2: yeah it is it really is mm-hmm.
1: hey sam what are you drinking
2: well so it's so hot in seattle I'm not sure if you can call it drinking. I've got a, um, a frozen block of Gatorade here. And just kind of... <laughs> just, just licking kind of it. <laughs> licking it. Hey, dude. Yeah. Just rubbing that. it
1: all over your skin. <laughs> like, oh, please, go and do my pores. No,
2: no seriously. I, I got home from, from work yesterday, and my room was 85 degrees. Nice. And it has gone down to 84, as this right know. now. And that's just where we're at. So, so I'm gonna
1: counter with right now in Boston. Actually, today it was like down to 60 degrees, but the past few days it's been around uh, 75, 80. But the thing is, we have all this humidity here, and because you guys don't have humidity out in Washington, you don't usually feel the need to put AC in, which makes perfect sense because you only have a few days a, a, a year where it's actually unbearable. Uh,
2: it's pretty. Yeah, this is one of them. Yeah.
0: yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't go that. See, I I'm from the Midwest where like 90 100 degrees with humidity, that that is on the table for our summers. Um 100 degrees with humidity would be a bad summer, but it's still very much on the table. So even but you have AC. Level, but you have AC. But I also have my parents who are keeping the AC at an absolute minimum. So that, you no, know.
1: but okay, no. But you have central AC. Even here in Boston, it's like window Interesting. you don't
0: have do you have air conditioning at all in your apartment
1: so in in the apartment where i, I live right now it is just a window it's just a window box it, at the yeah, place yeah. we're moving to next year it's like a house so i think that'll be central yeah okay. but brevin you have like two windows in that apartment yes okay <sighs> i yeah um regardless as for myself um I, I was hoping to be drinking um, early times that uh, drink from the Walker Percy uh, novels, but um, but um, unfortunately I actually am drinking something else, which is uh, an IPL. Uh, any guess what that is?
0: The Impaled Lager.
1: Yes. I didn't know that these hey! existed, but I went to the store looking for an IPA, and I was like, what the hell is an IPL? And I picked it up, and it's pretty good. It's basically just uh, like a lager, and someone just dumped like a quarter ton of hops in it. So... It's, it's pretty solid. Jacks Abbey. pretty good. It's called a Hoponious Union, obviously a pun on Harmonious Union, which the United States is not, judging by what McIntyre says in Chapter 17. Stephen, go. I'm
0: not, I'm not going to go. Um, I, I, I went last time.
2: I summarized it this
0: time.
1: I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Thank Sam. Thank you, Sam. Thank
0: you.
2: And, and just a disclaimer to our, to our listeners, um, I did fall asleep while reading this chapter last night and summarizing it, so we're just going to see what happens with the summary, but I Jane. think I know what it means, and hopefully you will now know what it means. Basically...
0: It, really goes, it just leads to like a dream sequence that you had, and it's <laughs> completely off the rails.
2: I would know. I would know. It's the same you thing. You
0: found yourself
1: wandering <laughs> through a dark forest, and you saw a gate that said virtue is only after through here, or something. I don't know. And then anyway. then, isn't figure with a Notre Dame T-shirt came up to you and said, hey, let me guide you. And it was McIntyre guiding you through the seven levels of After Virtue.
2: And we are on the 17th. So basically, this chapter starts off with saying that, uh, well, in the previous chapters, apparently, I read them, he is talking about the differences in character and how different people see um, virtues and how those are um, understood. And he says the the largest disagreement on what a virtue is, is the content and character of that particular virtue. He says that no two cultures can really agree on the complete content and that these two items are determined by that culture. And then he kind of goes into this long digression about his characters A and B. Um, In A's situation, uh, taxes threaten his project of building a house, and so he votes for candidates who will, quote, defend his property, his projects, and his conception of justice pretty reasonable person. Uh, character B sees non-redistributive taxation as unjust. It's basically arbitrary. It leads to inequality. Um, and overall, the market system's absolutely terrible. And so he d- uses his rationality to draw the a conclusion that we need um, redistributive taxation. So he votes for candidates who will, quote, defend redistributive taxation and his conception of justice. Man, what a loser. Yeah, I know. You know, crazy, crazy commie. And so both A and B will inherently disagree. They agree that the, that, that justice is an end to be, per, or a, a virtue to be pursued. And they're going to take action to pursue that. But they can only do it up to the point that their, con, their concepts of justice are put against one another. And you realize that there's no way for those two concepts to engage. So they reduce down to nothingness, to the inability to argue. It's really easy to identify the principles that do conflict. So you can identify that, A is following the principle of entitlement, that people should get what they are entitled to, in his case, building his house that he has bought the property for and wishes to build. And B follows the principle of equality, that people should be given equal rights, they should be given equal opportunity, and they should be given equal property through the distribution of wealth. So, and then he kind of takes this jab at American culture, where he basically says that we are totally pluralistic, and... That's normally seen as a good thing, but in his case, he says that means there's no way to weigh these. We have absolutely no way, no method in our culture to weigh these two different values, these two different principles of entitlement versus equality. Um, And then he kind of reveals his, this was kind of a thinly veiled scapegoat for uh, the conflict between Nozak and Rawls. So Nozak is obviously A, Rawls is B. For Rawls, let me find the section in the book I said read section and book, but then I didn't actually say what page it was on. Basically, for Rawls, um, everything, uh, uh, all social primary goods are liberty, and they should be distributed equally, unless equal distribution or less unequal distribution gives an advantage to the least favored. So that's that's his conception of Rawls. So basically, it's just benefiting people equally. All right, uh, Nozick. It is just straight entitlement that dictates um just distribution. So if you follow what people are entitled for and you give them those that that which they are entitled to, it will be distributed justly. This captures exactly this disagreement seen between A and B, and we're back at the disagreement that he that he was talking about earlier. He does point out that neither addresses the concept of desert. That it's not just just that they are entitled or that the poor are being deprived, but that the person who is entitled to something or those who are treated in unequit- unequitably deserve something. And so that kind of, that push for action. Rawl says that dessert comes after the rules of justice are formulated. So it's kind of subservient to those rules. Nozick, I don't even think he talks much about what Nozick thinks of dessert. It's basically, it comes out of um, what they're entitled to. And so he says that community is required to apply that, con- that, that dessert, that, Nozick and Rawls push community to the more individual, family, contractual level, but it's not a common end of a larger community, that people can deserve things and get things on a small level, but when you try to apply it in the community, you're governed by rules. He's saying that that community should govern everything. McIntyre then goes on to say that by excluding the community, or by not considering the community in this overall discussion of dessert you exclude reference to the past. Nozek falls apart if you look to the past because where does the original entitlement begin? If entitlement either comes from something that you gain from yourself or is given to you, where, where did it start? Um, he then talks about how the A and B defer to a common past and are much more uh, Christian or Aristotelian in that each of those groups, um, or each of those people, I believe, is coming from a common community. And he talks about how only small groups in the United States are able to do this right now. So very specific communities um, that hold to values. Um, Talking about like Orthodox Jews is one of his examples. Um, Those are people who are able to continue to do this right now. And then he then uh, talks about Marx. He was, I believe, a Marxist at the time of writing this, um, or this book, or the writing of this book actually deconverted him from Marxism. And so he says that Marx was right in seeing this conflict between the classes and that conflict is more important than consensus in modern society in that we can't actually reach consensus. It always leads to conflict. Um, He then goes on to talk about how the Supreme Court in America is not deferring to shared principles. Rather, it's just navigating disagreements and trying to find peace, which leads to American society being utterly baseless and thus unable to answer this question. All right, how'd I do?
0: Uh, I would say well done. Uh, And yes, you are correct. Uh, He was Marxist. And I think, I'm trying to read up on his biography right now. I think he's still somewhat uh, sympathetic to Marxism, although he does Mm -hmm. criticize it.
2: No, he definitely is. Um, Yeah, I I keep forgetting the name of of his later book that I skimmed a couple parts of it for an essay I was writing last quarter. Um, which justice? Whose virtue? Something like that, or was it the which, justice, uh, which rationality? Or, or
1: yeah, or was it the three patterns of something or other?
0: Uh, three rival versions of moral inquiry.
1: Uh, dependent rational animals. Why do I even try to answer these questions? Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Also, incidentally, I'm thinking <laughs> um, that he wrote new essays in philosophical theology with Antony Flew. That would be. Hmm. Mm, I'm about that. Okay. Anyway, sorry, we're off topic.
1: So if y'all are done fangirling, um, (laughs) I enjoyed this chapter quite a bit because it did sort of bring us almost up to speed with modern political debate. Um, While it definitely wouldn't be accurate to say that modern progressive slash liberal theory derives itself from Rawls in terms of philosophical discussion, as far as I understood it, Rawls has largely stood the test of time. Rawlsian theories inform a, a lot of, um, I guess, maybe the liberal, broadly liberal um, side of, of uh, what are moral decisions and ethical decisions in broader society. Whereas Nozick, Nozick and some of his predecessors, uh, Locke was brought up for example, are sort of more the, the chosen philosophers of those who contend with the Rawlsian um, sort of, I don't know, beneficent over society view of things you can think libertarians fusionist conservatives um of a certain stripe at least so i definitely appreciated that and and what mcintyre's big point seems to be is that both of these conceptions of of justice have to start from this sort of totally unreal position of this man in a vacuum disconnected from everyone with no prior or with no priors uh, rather Sort of floating in the midst or on the desert isle, uh, with complete strangers having to design a society from the ground up, without any possible, without even accepting the idea that there can be things that connect us to other human beings, uh, with with bonds uh, that we have little control over. Sort of weirdly aut- autonomous and non-dependent animals, unlike creatures are. But then furthermore that we, that that in Political discourse, which he broadly divides between A and B, the ability to call back to any justice is limited, and any attempt to use sort of larger theories such as Rawls or Nozick ultimately end up only eroding A and B's uh, positions that they like to the conclusion that the Supreme Court and just our cultural and political battles generally are civil war carried on by other means. That's a quote, and I think quite. A good one, and I think you can see that in in modern politics, where and I'm sorry, I'm going on a, a bit long here, but you can see that in modern politics where the court is pretty central, especially when it comes to the presidency. A lot of the evangelical vote that went for Trump, for example, was justified nominally, uh, whether with whether it was truthful, none can fathom. Um, but on that, <clears throat> the court has become the central place where large-scale issues are d- are decided on behalf of the entire country, whether we like it or not. So it's necessary to protect our cultural values at this level. And since then, especially with Justice Kennedy, who, no, no, not Kennedy, Roberts, who's attempting to sort of navigate this line between he has conservative principles, but he's trying not to rock the boat too much, because if he hands down a whole bunch of strongly you know, if he falls down on the conservative side with Alito and Thomas and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, it, it's going to create huge rifts in the in the country. Um, yes.
0: Civil war carried out through other means was a very potent uh, analogy, or he might not even say it's an analogy, he might say that that's just a direct measurement of reality. And he wouldn't necessarily be wrong in saying so, I suppose. Uh, the, the idea that right now the court acts as not trying to further society's reach, not trying to kind of further our own narrative, but rather as the mediator between two warring factions that is just kind of say, okay, like, what do I have to do to get both of you to settle down and not kill each other? The the fact that that's kind of where we're at is certainly a terrifying notion. And I think one of the, one of the most horrible things about this whole thing is I can't help but agree that this is really the only option when you have such a pluralistic society. And that's not to say that pluralism in itself is bad. I mean, you know, like there it's just kind of one of the, the facts of our society that given that we have so many competing narratives, we can't we can't just choose one arbitrarily. That's pluralism. And so we are kind of left to Supreme Court decisions are making truces between warring factions just to try to make sure that everyone can get along reasonably well
2: enough. Yeah, I had an interesting conversation a couple of days ago um just at work with a couple um I guess like more uh, higher up gentleman in the company. It was a very good conversation we started talking somebody had mentioned that I was into politics and what I was studying and we were talking about Aristotle and, you know, classical philosophy and then we started getting into and, and they, were, they were all on board with that. Um, these three guys who I was talking to all had read Aristotle, all really liked him. Um, and then we started talking about contemporary politics. And as I started to share my opinions, the first thing that I realized is that they were all pretty far conserv- American conservatives. They all supported um, President Trump pretty strongly. And so as I started talking They kept pushing back, first of all, about my opinions not being that conservative, which I thought was kind of interesting that that was a standard and kind of an absolute value is how conservative are your opinions? And then as we started talking about the success of the Trump presidency and the reasons that I did not vote for him, the pushback that I received was, well, you're young, you're just a little bit idealistic and trying to stand by principles, and at this point, we just need, you know, could you imagine what the alternative was? We just need to weigh the alternatives and weigh the consequences. And I just thought that was really interesting, the, the twist, for the, the shift from, you know, needing to stand by these principles at all costs unless we're looking at the consequences and then just throwing principles out the window in favor of avoiding worse consequences. Um, I think it's, a, it's, it's kind of a microcosm of what he's talking about in this chapter where there is no principle that there's any basis in for political decisions. It's basically adopting principles by whatever suits your means um, for the moment.
0: That is a bit chilling how fast it can go from lofty ideas of principles to just immediate, well, we just, we, we got to choose even this horrible decision. We, we, we just have to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's something a little chilling about that. Certainly.
2: No, it was, it was. And that was kind of the, the last, the, my, I guess my conclusion to that conversation was where I was like, well, should we really make our decisions based entirely off the consequences I'm not so sure that that's a good idea. I think that we've seen in past, you know, administrations without checks and balances that when you make decisions off of entirely consequences, consequence based, it leads to some very, very nasty things. Hmm. Um, and that was an innovative concept in that in that circle. Oh,
0: intriguing. So, and just kind of given that this is where we're at, Brendan and I were discussing before the before the podcast that. This is where McIntyre really is starting to ramp up to his, it's anachronistic to call it the Benedict option now, but that is, this is where he's really ramping up in in the previous chapter and in this chapter. You can tell he's starting to say, look, our society just isn't equipped to handle uh, the concept of virtue ethics, the concept of of a a common narrative. So we're going to need these societies. Like you mentioned the Orthodox Jews, I think also the Irish Catholics and the Greek Orthodox uh, were also cited as examples. Mm Mm-hmm. We, we need societies it, I, I like think, this that can carry on uh, those sorts so, of narratives. So this is getting a little bit
1: into some, some wonky stuff with methodology. But at least in Chapter 17, the issues that he's talking about, at least in the language that he's talking about them, um, seem to be primarily directed at the United States. Which is a unique situation, but it's not unusual that he would be directing... Um, his thoughts here, and you know, in addition as in as far as in as far as it is legitimate to see the United States as sort of the greatest or one of the greatest heirs of the intellectual traditions that McIntyre is himself dealing with, I think that's not terribly inaccurate or at least the biggest one, um which is incontestable. It would be interesting to see to apply McIntyre's analysis across Europe because I don't think we've gotten a good idea. And maybe it's just because, you know, being in the US, we primarily get US news. I don't think I have a good idea of how McIntyre's analysis holds up, slash compares, slash can be applied to Europe. And it would be interesting to see if the problem is is somewhat different, because a lot of what he's getting at here, and there are parts that are about secularization and sort of the the loss of uh, central teleology and, and whatever that, that comes from that and just sort of the general currents of ideological diversity in, in Europe. But a lot of the problems or or, or or at least the most acute issues with a pluralistic, or well, let's not say pluralistic, of a multicultural society are most acute in the United States. So I, I, I wonder if all societies to which his analysis might apply are as poor off in the same way uh, as we are here.
0: I if, if McIntyre's thesis is correct, I would say, if anything, Europe, Europe would probably be in an even worse situation, given that that's where the Enlightenment began and had its most potency or, or its strongest potency or what have you. Um, I, so if McIntyre is correct, maybe this is a distinctly American phenomenon. I would doubt it. Um, and I know at least theologically, Europe is way ahead of us as far as kind of going into to post-Christianity and abandoning at least the Judeo-Christian Talos. Whether or not they've abandoned other Talos' is up for grabs, but given that as of, you know, eighteen or uh, what, 1200 years ago, that's one of the main Talos' that they've known, it's kind of up for grabs whether there are even any other competing end goals.
1: I think the main thing that I'm pointing out is that he, one of the things he talks about is this all-encompassing pluralism that sort of, Disguises the fact that we have irreparable conflicts with each other. But pluralism, as a society in which you have sort of these multiple but strong lanes of living life, down to the point where different states could be hypothetically totally different from other states, even though they're neighbors, in terms of culture, laws, values, blah, 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 ruling party. I, I don't think many European nations are comparable in the same way in that the U.S.'s structure was to embrace pluralism as a core concept, whereas Europe has historically not been. So that's not to say that Europe doesn't have its own set of issues, but I'm wondering if pluralism might not be the issue that Europe faces. It might be something I,
0: else. I think pluralism is just an American manifestation. Of, it's more of a cultural mani- – or so maybe not an American manif- manifestation, a cultural manifestation of this problem – if you lose the ability to have ethical conversations via narrative, via virtue, any sort of disagreement, like, I feel like in that case, you're going to be in either one camp or another. You're going to be either associating with a particular set of rights and a particular way of approaching those rights, or you will be in an, in a different camp where you take a different set of rights and you just kind of assume those and you go at it. I mean, like pluralism is, of one variety in that you can have Christians and Muslims and atheists and agnostics and Buddhists and whatnot, all kind of mishmashed together um, different ethnicities, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but even people within those camps in America are disagreeing and not able to have those sort of conversations because they don't know how. Um, so even when the liberal Christian, and the conservative Christian talk, it is a lot more limited because they are most of the time going with rights based language versus uh, you know, perhaps going to their common narrative. Although to be fair, most Christians can at least have that conversation relating to Christ. And I'm sure most Muslims can have it relating to, you know, Allah and his prophet and, and whatnot.
2: Anything to add there, Sam? Um I guess when you're talking about Europe, um I, I definitely agree that the United States is kind of more of an experiment in pluralism. McIntyre pointed that out, and maybe that was why he was zeroing in on the United States, is because Europe has always been nationally oriented i mean it's where the it's where the concept of the nation emerged uh, our, our modern like nation state idea emerged in the united states held on to their idea of of subverting that that we're going to have a bunch of states but they're also going to be united um hence the name and so europe we've only had about 50 years where it hasn't been a multipolar competing states area 60 or 70 years, more like it, actually. But even then, we're seeing that, that even that period is beginning to break down with the EU slowly f- falling apart. And so, um, yeah, I, I guess it would be interesting to see how he applies this argument to Europe. I think they have other issues, but their strong embr- the strong embrace of pluralism, I don't think, is one of them. So,
1: All right, well, I think we will move on uh, from that point. Um, I'm sure there's much more to talk about, but I'm sure, that in Chapter 18, next week, hopefully, we will have a complete solution to our problem and have uh, no problems, concerns, or additions uh, to add to it. I'm, I'm I'm sure McIntyre will wrap up this masterful work with a masterful, nail-biting, and incontestable conclusion. But speaking of incontestable conclusions, uh, Stephen, I believe you have a short article uh, that... TLDR says, uh, I don't want to be free. I want to be good, question mark?
0: I do indeed. Uh, So I'm presenting uh, an oldie but a goodie, uh, David Bentley Hart's article in First Things, uh, Freedom and Decency. Uh, This is an article from way back in June 2004. Uh, so in this, part, takes on one of the hot topics of the time, Janet Jackson's debacle in the 2004 Super Bowl halftime. Uh, for the younger members of our audience who aren't aware, uh, Miss Jackson, during the performance, had a piece of her costume taken off, which actually ended up exposing her breasts uh, to the uh, general viewing public. Uh, there was quite a lot of hullabaloo about it, and many contacted the network to complain, and there was a whole, there was a whole fuss. Uh, Hart opens up with a rather dry comment that things could be much worse, citing a Norwegian black metal band in Krakow, Poland, which featured, quote, among other whimsical conceits, naked women hanging from crosses, one of them had to be hospitalized when she lost consciousness, Uh, a dozen sheep's heads impaled on stakes, perhaps a hundred liters of sheep's blood poured over the performers and their audience, a stage festooned with Satanist sigils and songs of praise to the devil, end quote. He uses this com- this example as a comment on how, quote, our chief cultural export in terms of profits generated, at least is not blasphemy, end quote, adding a dry parenthetical that, quote, it remains, if one is curious, pornography, end quote. But regardless of what ill thing is being exported, the question remains whether it should be allowed to be exported. Commenting that while it is a relief to see people protest against this sort of explicit content being shown in the public sphere, it is likely that those who shook their heads at this are perfectly, quote, Willing to tolerate most of the grossive influences that invade family life, from advertising, films, popular music, the internet, video games, the language we have all become accustomed to hearing every day, so long as those influences continue unobtrusively to operate in their proper places, end quote. From here, he launches into some rather interesting discussion around censorship as an answer to an ever-spiraling culture of degradation, uh, stating that, quote, any sane society should be able to uncontentiously agree. "'and yet ours cannot,' end quote. He argues compellingly for censorship, arguing that, quote, "'where no codes of civil conduct govern cultural production, "'it is inevitable that those who are coarsest "'and most consciousless, "'those who are most wanting in shame, restraint, "'imagination, modesty, consideration, or charity, "'will prevail,' end quote. He dispatches the arguments against censorship quite well, "'noting that most of them take the form of slippery slope. "'Any amount of censorship will lead to a totalitarian regime "'of canonical standards,' Quote, this of course is nonsense. In the days when the U.S. Postal Office had the authority to prosecute those who delivered obscene materials through the mails and cinema was subject to the Hayes office and communities were permitted to ban books, there were certainly cases of excessive zeal in the application of these powers and instances when provincialism triumphed over art and perhaps many miscarriages of justice, but mirabile dictu, however you pronounce that Latin, uh, we were not at the mercy of secret police, warrantless incarceration in nameless prisons, Tortures, murder journalists, and the cults of the great leader, the, the rule of clandestine tribunals, the back, the bullet in the back of the head at dawn, all these things remained miraculously absent from our society. End quote. There are more examples he addresses that I won't repeat here, given that honestly, if the above is any example, I simply cannot do service to his precise, cutting, and downright funny prose. But he arrives from this discussion on censorship to the meaning behind it, that of a society that chooses to restrain itself in order to reach for something better. He laments our current conception of the good, quote, It is a curious condition of late Western modernity that, for so many of us, the highest ideal of the good society is simply democracy as such. And then within democracy, varying alloys of capitalism, the welfare state, regionalism, federalism, individualism, and so on. And what we habitually understand democratic liberty to be, what we take, that is, as our most exalted model of freedom is merely the unobstructed power of choice, end quote. He finds this ridiculous, stating, quote, an absolutely negative liberty, the absence of any religious, cultural or societal restrictions upon the exercise of the will may often seem desirable, at least for oneself, but ultimately offers only the freedom of chaos, a foremost potential. This is the classic freedom from versus freedom to dichotomy that another philosopher that always goes by his full name, named David, discusses. Uh, He goes on to flesh this idea out theologically. Uh, exploring more and more the paradox of libertarian freedom being slavery, but voluntarily training and indeed limiting of ourselves as perfect freedom. Quote, the ultimate consequence of a purely libertarian political ethos, if it is taken to its logical end, would be a world in which we would no longer even remember that what we should want to choose, sorry, the ultimate consequence of a purely libertarian political ethos, if it could be taken to its logical end, would be a world in which we would no longer even remember That we should want to choose the good, as we would have learned to deem things good solely because they have been chosen. This would, in truth, be absolute slavery to the to the momentary, the final eclipse of rational dignity, the triumph within us of the bestial over the spiritual, and so of death over life. He notes that some are calling this a cultural war, and comments that if it's war we want, we should not recoil from sacrifice. And in fact, that is potentially what we as individuals are called to. Indeed. We cannot really affect the course of a nation at all or even properly imagine what kind of political or social future we should want. So long as we fail to remember and to fashion our lives according to the knowledge that we exist only because there is one who has called us from nothingness to be what he desires us to be, not simply what we would like to make of ourselves, and that we shall be truly free and know what freedom is only when we have no choices left. So I absolutely love this article. It is so very well written. Uh, It is just uh, honestly quite relevant to kind of our current chapter as such. Um, It does go a lot more in depth to kind of what it is to model a society that seeks the good and how to kind of insert ourselves into a narrative of the good. So I would highly recommend this. Uh, Honestly, I did not do enough justice to it. Would highly recommend going and and reading it yourselves.
1: I would say, um, I would note rather, Definitely, uh, much better read than heard, just because it's so convoluted is not the right word. It's so precise and deliberately put together that it's. But sometimes that's hard to hear, and it's easier to read on a page. But I really like this article. For a couple of reasons. Um, one is that it reminds us of how terrible Europe is, um, which we kind of need reminding of every now and then. The second thing that I like about it is it reemphasizes sort of this strange puritanical prudishness of americans that is quite admirable uh in the end um and we still kind of have actually which is nice and the third thing that i like about it is that it is a very good critique of a sort of empty libertarianism in that we've sort of been reading this mcintyre chapter talking about the reduction of complex life decisions and you know lives qua narratives whatever to these weird axioms and these weird um, definitions that, oh, a rational person existing in space with no priors and no biases would choose to construct things in X way that is the only rational way and we should construct our society in X fashion going forward, um, which is ridiculous. And the passage that you read particularly about um, the person so obsessed with keeping everything free to choose forgets the importance of making choices and mistakes people choosing something as something being important, um, which I, I think is a, as, as someone who, as I've mentioned, grew up in libertarian boot camp. um, <laughs> but, but also, um, sort of half, I would say vaguely fusionist conservative, especially in sort of the modern debates between like David French and Saurabh in terms of more fusionism conservatism versus a, a stronger, uh, you could say maybe post-liberal conservatism, um, these are debates that are important to have and, and important to remember these things that the emphasis on freedom can be taken too far, but that it is always precarious and difficult to tell where those lines are.
0: It is. And I think he he addressed that quite well. Um, he did bring up several instances of you know censorship going too far, but also would kind of note, well, there, there are ways around that and there are ways to limit even censorship and, and, and what have you. Um, and just on the whole, yeah, I, I really I really like the kind of paradoxical surrendering your freedom can oftentimes you know lead you to perfect freedom, while as a complete falling into whatever you want is actual slavery. And I I, I just really like that it, he he dove into it in such a very precise way and a very eloquent way that it was it was just on the whole a pleasure to read. Um, I would agree that uh, reading it is probably better than hearing it um, certainly.
2: Yeah, I really like the nuanced approach that he takes to the culture war. Um, I grew up in a pretty similar culture that Brevin was describing. And I don't know, the way that he examines that and kind of takes multiple steps beyond where most of these people who are fighting this war um, go with it is looking at, well, what is the assumption behind the idea of fighting this war? What is that doing to us? And th- those are the kind of questions... That I wish we're being asked more, but I really appreciate the fact that he is, or at least was, asking them in uh, 2000, but 2004? When you wrote this, all the way back in
0: 2004, 15
2: and is, years too early. All right, and he is an um, Eastern Orthodox theologian. Yes. Yep. One
0: one of the few kind of very scholastic oriented, uh, Eastern Orthodox theologians.
1: Yeah, they so are the most Catholic of the Eastern Orthodox, is what I'm hearing.
0: I mean, you're not wrong there.
2: <laughs> I mean, when I was reading the article, he it, it it did sound Catholic. But then when I think about the way that he phrases, you know, the the surrendering to the the higher good and just kind of orienting towards that, I mean, it's a Catholic concept as well. But it it, it does sound. Fox. god damn it! I need to get one of you. I can't lose both. You're gonna lose both.
1: <laughs> Sorry, <man. laughs> uh, well, let's also the Janet Jackson controversy. Man, that's a
2: throwback. I,
0: don't... I know, right? I had to Wikipedia the exact like. I now have that in my search history. Super Bowl two thousand four. Um, but I had to Wikipedia to remember like exactly what went down. It just oh, I don't so even bizarre down. and crass. So, so
1: I would have been, like, nine, but I definitely wouldn't have known about it until I was, like, 15 or something and, like, was, like, following football and tracking back the Super Bowls. But anyway, that's all uh, water under the proverbial uh, Justin Timberlake Bridge. So for my article from City Journal by Heather McDonald, this is uh, the college bureaucracy that never shrinks. Um, and I only have a few things to say on it. But uh, – Her argument is more or less that the various uh, political crises around college, most notably student debt, are not the result of just this inevitable act of God, but very specifically of human choice. And she notes that colleges, on average, depending on whether they're public or private, spend two to three times what they are mandated to on administration positions. Um, She looks at Georgetown as a case study. She has some other examples, but her main look is at Georgetown. And they recently launched a new uh, Vice President for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, which also comes with an associate vice president and also various staff under that person. Well, we do um, need those.
2: I, I've seen firsthand we do really, really need those. But here's the thing. The person <laughs> that they... Yeah, okay. Shush, shush your mouth. Um, <laughs> Sorry. But, but the person
1: chosen uh, for this p- position was, in fact, a uh, longtime Georgetown vice president, who, on her CV and like on her qualifications for this, had a history of basically doing everything that this vice president for diversity, equity, inclusion would be doing. And she'd been doing it for 40 years. Uh, she'd been on every, you know, anti racism panel, uh, gender equity panel, blah, 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 blah. Um, and with no success, apparently. And Georgetown also has uh, 13 centers on campus devoted to the same type of topics, each with their own staff, and 19-plus uh, funded student groups and also uh, dorm houses, also with the same goals in, in, in mind. Um, and, and she notes that uh, Georgetown's annual tuition room and board is approximately $72,000 a year. And in addition to all of these on-campus uh, efforts, they also choose the students that they admit to their university. So all the Various inequalities that they're trying to solve, they, I don't know, they're making the problem themselves or the problem doesn't exist. And that is shown through both this vice president position and the person who's taking the position and all the different campus groups that all already exist with apparently no effect or no um, effect to call like, hey, we've reached the end point here. And that's natural to bureaucracy, because the logic of bureaucracies is to either make no progress, deny making progress, or to constantly invent new problems. Otherwise, you run yourself out of a job. You cease to exist. Uh, and especially on touchy, complex issues, there's even more cushioning. And this doesn't have to do with just social justice-oriented topics. However, Heather McDonald's research obviously focuses on that. So that's the, the direction of this article. And her solution to this is, is much the solution you would apply to any category of spending in which you are – you know in- increasingly large amounts of money go into with apparently no return or, it, or even if there is a return, apparently a constant and increasing demand, which we're seeing across all campuses in the U.S., um, and she says that uh, quote colleges should itemize spending on diversity functions and functionaries, in- including faculty time spent on committees dedicated to race and sex-based hiring and admissions. Every identity-based center and program should be listed along with their budget, so that parents and the public can know how much tuition and taxpayer money subsidizes separatism. Only then will colleges be held accountable for their ballooning tuition costs. End quote. The the separatism that she's mentioning there. She brings some, some a- examples of like specific uh, dorms for specific races or like events like graduations for specific races um, that she ob- objects to. But again, the main thing that I want to call attention to in this is just sort of the logic of bureaucracies and the ultimate difficulty in holding them accountable, especially on things that they're hired to be the expert in that are also extremely powerful cultural touch points. Um, and just sort of this uh, particular nexus of, I don't want to say corruption, let's say potential for. For misuse and ballooning budgets to no end, um, that I think is good that she highlights. As someone who uh, went through college and um, you know will go through college again here in the new future,
2: we'll have to deal with the debt that that entails. And, and is currently working in the um, in the college bureaucracy, I believe.
1: Also true. <laughs> um, part of
2: the problem.
1: I'm not
0: overpaid. I'm, I'm made. <laughs> but, uh. I I I do very much like that. Um, that solution, even though I think I actually disagree on the problem proper. I mean, yes, certainly large amounts of money are getting dumped into these initiatives, but there are plenty of places that colleges ostensibly waste uh, money generally on um, you know, programs that that are meaningless and won't actually get you know students jobs when they get out of college, on ever you know widening sports budgets, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, but regardless, I think the Stephen, solution, Stephen,
1: Stephen well, that. Well, $2 billion student gym and workouts is a totally justified expense. It will pay SAU for has, itself. SEU yeah, has if, redone absolutely.
0: their freaking gym facilities, I think, two times now, and their computer science department is it, – it, it, it's a bitter point for me. It's a bitter, bitter point. And the, the The rivalry between nerds and jocks goes to college and beyond. But regardless, I think, honestly, if colleges were held accountable for reporting their numbers to potential students – honestly, I think that would do so much good. I think it would cause quite a few colleges to reconsider their budgets and potentially go out of business because people would realize how frivolously they're spending their massive amounts of student money that you know they'll be in debt for the next 10, 15 years for. So I, I love a, that solution.
2: I think it's a good solution. The problem is that the people who would have to re- show this budget are in fact the administrators who would be risking shutting down... Um, who would risk their schools shutting down over them revealing this.
0: Precisely. So yeah, that, that I think you're right. And therefore the solution will probably never be affected.
2: There was one school I was reading about and I'm, I'm totally spacing on the, the name of it. Uh, it was, it was a big school in the South um, where the president took a major pay cut. Um, and, and and basically has been like cutting huge amounts of staff.
1: This was on a Freakonomics podcast.
2: Yes, it was. I listened to the first half of that podcast and I was really enjoying it. I know what
1: podcast you're talking about. I don't know,
2: but I know what you're talking about. Okay. Okay. I'll need to re listen and bring it back. There's a school that exists where the president is cutting massive amounts of programs. And and, the tuition has been lower the last like five years than it has been. And he's been publishing it directly as and and pushing that directly off on the students and um, seeing huge success there. For
0: him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it is an interesting phenomenon that. Unfortunately, colleges are also very incentivized to put the money towards very frivolous things, such as upgrading the dorms and, you know, getting very quality catering, et cetera, et cetera, because just quite frankly, these things bring in students more than academics, Um, which is kind of an indictment towards America's overall view of how college should work. But that's unfortunately just kind of where we're at. Liberal arts
1: was once the domain of the landed gentry. Our great mistake was extending it to everyone. If people didn't know how to read, they wouldn't be asking for these things. I think we're back to we just do not need to teach people how to read. That's the real problem with reading. That's the real problem That's with reading is that people know how to do it. Uh, Sam, I believe your rant
2: might be related to this. Well, it might. It might contradict that, actually. Is is the problem with reading that people don't read or do read, or is it that they don't read enough, or they don't love reading? Um, and this is, it's going to be half and half. It's going to be a, a half uplifting rant, and it's going to be a half kind of downer rant. And I will preface that it will be a longer rant, because I don't have an article this week. Um, so yesterday, I had an experience that kind of changed a little bit of my perspective on this. Um, the company I work for did a, conducted a day of service at a local charter school. And so I, I jumped in on that and we went and helped sort books and then worked with the, with the kids, did a few activities with them. It was, it was a really, there wasn't a whole lot going on it. It was mostly kind of the school talking about the programs that they're doing. Um, And mainly the company had just don't, our company had donated a huge amount of books to the school. So we were helping deliver those. Um, But at the school, the school was for kindergarten and first graders, um, completely by lottery, coming from the very diverse community of Tukwila, where most of them were English as second language students. And these kids were coming into the school having very little knowledge of English and coming out after a year reading at a grade above their reading level. So if they're kindergarten, if they're reading at a first grade level and loving it. And the school has basically oriented everything around cultivating these kids' love of physical books and cultivating their love of reading. And doing everything they can to instill just a love of learning in the kids. And their whole philosophy is that this will basically carry on into later in elementary school, middle school, high school, into the kids getting after academics and eventually becoming the first members of their families to go to college. Um, and first of all, a few things to take away from this is first, it was it was really uplifting to see kids um, so excited about learning. I know it's way too happy, isn't it? Um Sorry, Brevin just messaged me saying this is too happy. Um, no, so th- that that was exciting. That was really good to see. But the second kind of side of that is in compare- comparing that to the the United States public school education system on a whole, and how that does very very little to actually cultivate this love of reading, and the stark differences between what you see in normal kindergartners kindergarteners to these kindergarteners who are basically random by random chance put into this charter school it's a public it's publicly funded with about 60 percent of uh the funding of a public school per student so they're operating on very little resources um and all students go there for free with the exception that it's random
1: so here's the rant abolish the public school system well
2: that might be it is it's just it was incredible Incredibly depressing to see that these kids were getting this rare and amazing opportunity, but most kids aren't going to get this. And most kids are going to go through school not cultivating any kind of love of reading and they are going to go to college picking it based off the climbing wall it has instead of the actual academic programs, Um, which is kind of where it ties into your article. And so walking away from this, I was hopeful for these kids, but also very saddened with how far education has gone in the United States. And so the solutions would either be, if you're gonna if you're gonna read, if you're gonna teach people to read, they need to love it because otherwise you're stuck in this. Or I don't know. Um, maybe that's the problem with reading. I guess that's kind of the conclusion to the rant. What do you guys
0: think? What with reading is you need to either love it or you need to hate it. You can't or hate it via ignorance. Like you can't do it or you have to love it. If you kind of yes. learn enough to read, you it it's kind of the you 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 know enough to be dangerous. Uh, I like. Mm-hmm kind of the, the classic college sophomore in their major that, that now thinks they know everything. Um, they, they, they have enough of the knowledge to kind of be able to get away with it, but in all actuality, anyone who is actually trained in their field will be able to fully articulate exactly how wrong they are. And that's, that's kind of, I guess, a similar thing with most forms of knowledge, reading included. If
1: you learn how to read, you either need to learn how to read uh, the Nicomachean ethics, or you will end up as a meme poster on an Aristotle-based uh, meme page, which will ultimately lead to the end of us all. Um,
2: Revan, don't you post memes on the McIntyre meme page?
1: Shush. i oh, he does. <laughs> shush, shush. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, um, but speaking of a couple idiots uh talking to each other uh, i did an escape room the other weekend <laughs>
2: Excuse you. and it was Whoa.
1: quite the blast uh, so so i've done four at this point. point three i've completed successfully uh but the most recent one uh i i i failed i went with three people i knew including my wife and two relatives and then we were paired with three people we didn't know a mom like a late teens daughter and like a 13 something year old wait are you still um, in the room Yeah, still there.
2: Um, Okay, got it.
1: escape rooms are stressful and complex enough with the complete lack of communication and coordination that being paired with uh, random children brings. So, like, granted, he was actually pretty good, uh, but when he got a bad idea in his head, he would just be, like, running around with our clues, and the only way to get back on track was, like, to take them from him, or to, like, tell his mom to take them from him, which was just not a good look. Um... All this to say, uh, when you do an escape room, I highly recommend that you do it with your friends and just your friends. Uh, because being locked in a room with a timer with friends is already hard and stressful enough. Uh, don't make it worse by locking yourself in with strangers. Um, please We're help. Thirteen
0: year old kid, I'm still here. Keep...
1: <laughs> my date is running out. This is, this is my last cry for help.
0: I, I'm curious. Like, have you eaten everyone else? Like, how are you still alive?
1: Um, well, my, my relatives uh, uh, perished uh, two days ago, and then just this morning, we've been subsisting off of their phones, or uh, the, their bones, rather. Um, the, the, <laughs> their phones, that's
0: how you stay connected to social media, because that is true death, getting cut off Yes, from that. yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, the, the mother of the two children sacrificed herself um, the day after we realized we weren't going to get out the 13-year-old still has two of the five clues we need to find the numbers for <laughs> the pad. He, he, he's not letting it, them go, and he keeps trying to like put them together as a puzzle piece, but I keep telling him, that's a shoe, that's a cup, they aren't going to fit together in any meaningful way. But, you know, he's, he's still on that, so we're just hoping he'll get over that um, before uh, um, I have to sacrifice myself and for my wife to consume.
0: These days, am I right? The problem yeah. is, they know how to read, but don't love
1: it. It's it's so true. I swear, I've caught him six times posting just Aristotle memes. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> give me the clues. And he's like, no, got to post the memes. Then I'm going to put the shoe <laughs> and the cup together. <laughs> exactly. like that. <laughs> uh, Steven, do you have a rant? <laughs> uh,
0: you know, it's been a pretty good week. The The heat is starting to get to me. Although I will say, as as a Midwesterner, even without the air conditioning, on the whole, Seattle, y'all need to chill. It's not that bad. I, I have I have a couple of friends who have been complaining nonstop, and I just think, oh man, like Michigan, 100 degrees and humid, and like walking outside for five minutes, I'm soaked in sweat. That's when we're talking. Although, that's. Oh, well, funny.
1: aren't you a high and mighty Midwesterner? You with your fancy heat and all that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and proud of it too. But, uh, I I, I will contradict myself in saying that I'm really, really tired of sleeping with, like, only a sheet uh, and still being way too hot to actually fall asleep. You've been using sheets? Okay, look, I can't (laughs) sleep unless I have something. I'm not sure what sort of weird, you know, psychological mumbo-jumbo is going on. But, like, if I'm not wrapped in something, I just can't sleep. My mother didn't hold me enough, okay? There.
1: I don't have sheets. We ate them before we ate my
0: relatives. (laughs)
1: Wait, the escape room gave you sheets? Why did they give you sheets? It was one of the clues It uh, <laughs> might be a problem that's later. the
0: clue to get out! And you ate it!
1: <laughs> we were hungry.
0: <laughs>
1: okay. Uh, well, so is for of, fast. Yes, this has all gone down. Um, um, okay, uh, so for everyone here at the uh, Problem with Reading Podcast, uh, I'm Brevin, send help.
0: I'm uh, if you get around to it.
1: And I'm Sam. No. Me and we will see you next time. Hey, yes. Adios. Help me.
0: Okay.
2: Oh man, I do miss so, doing this.
0: Oh well, yeah, we're we're definitely glad to have you back. It's definitely not the same without
2: you. That was that was enjoyable. Did we that talk was- about anything of
0: meaning? that I'm exactly aware of, but, you know, I mean...